Welcome to the teaching ministry of Dr. Fred Lowry, illuminating God's Word for today's world. The choice, the Word of God, or the world. The choice, Christ, or culture for us. We can choose Christ. Recently, a national speaker was asked what was the most difficult address he ever had to give. He said, well, that's easy. So they asked me to speak at a national undertaker's convention, and they assigned me the the topic, how to look sad at a $10,000 funeral. Well, I'm going to talk about the, the happy side of sad. The happy side of sad. And we're in Matthew chapter 5. We're dealing with the Beatitudes. The attitudes that ought to be in your life. The Beatitudes are the attitudes that ought to be in your life. Now, we're not talking about smorgasbord. We're not talking about buffet, pick and choose. We're talking about all of these godly characteristics ought to be present in all of our lives all the time. That's the goal. God sets the standard. Last week we talked about blessed are the pure in spirit. For theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. He wasn't talking about the poor spirited, the passive, the negative, the down in the math group, no. He wasn't talking about the poverty stricken. Jesus had much to say about poverty. He had a special relationship with those who are poor, and he also warned about riches. He said it's very difficult for someone with wealth to even get to heaven because we have a tendency to depend upon our wealth and not upon God. But he wasn't talking about poor-spirited or poverty-stricken. He was talking about a spiritual condition, an attitude of life. He was talking about spiritual bankruptcy. Blessed, happy, we translate the word blessed to be happy. Happy are those who recognize they are bankrupt before God, who recognize their total dependency upon God, that in and of themselves they are helpless to be happy or to be holy. That word blessed We've discovered is a unique word. It really describes the, the character of God, the, the qualities of the Christian life. It's God living in your life. There's a Greek isle, makaria, the word makarios, that's the word for blessed. This was an island that did, did not need to import anything because everything the island needed was available on the island. They had sufficient trees and water and fruit vegetables, and everything that they needed to live and to be happy, they had on that island. And so it was called the island of Makarios. And so this word means that we are totally dependent upon God and that God is absolutely all that we ever need. We need God plus nothing to be happy. We need God plus nothing to make it in life. When it comes to death, we need God plus nothing. And over in a later part of this same Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us the word, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, 
And all these things shall be added unto you. What are these things? Well, one such thing is happiness. If you seek happiness, you'll never find it. But if you seek God, then happiness comes into your life. One day you realize that you have something within that the world can't give to you and the world can't take away from you. You have a peace that passeth all understanding. You have joy that's unspeakable and full of glory. Now what I'm telling you, the world is in total disagreement. The world is diametrically opposite in its philosophy. The world says somehow you can make yourself happy. Somehow you can be happy if you can just have enough stuff. If you can get enough stuff into your life. And yet the Bible says that life does not consist in the abundance of things. The world doesn't believe that. The world that's become a consumer-oriented culture, materialistic, if I can just have enough things, if I can buy enough things, if I can wear enough things, then somehow I'll be happy. We have a pleasure mania in our world today. We're trying everything in the world to be happy by trying to bring pleasure into our lives. And yet, America is a disappointed culture. We're basically an unhappy people because those things we're seeking for can never bring us the happiness that we desire. And how long it's going to take for us to learn that lesson, I'm not sure, but we're not doing a very good job with it. And so we try all these things, fascinating things, exciting things to bring happiness into our unhappy lives. We try things like uh, bungee jumping. Can you imagine that? I, I just can't get excited about the possibility of trying that. But yet people will go to any extreme to bring some thrill. They pop pills, chase thrills to try to bring some kind of happiness into their lives. This week we'll be celebrating the inauguration of a new president. I'm sure it's a careless mistake on their part, but as of now I've not been invited. But they are going to spend thousands and millions of dollars on celebrating the changing of the guard, the changing of the presidency. What if we just had 10% of what will be spent in Washington this coming week to operate Bozier on? I think we could probably make it if we just, if we get 10% of all that will be spent. And yet, does that mean that that will bring happiness? Will having a new president make us happy in America? Oh, don't get me started on that. We'd, we won't even go down that road at all. We'll just stay right where we are. But I do encourage you to pray for our new president. Pray for our country. It's a very difficult time in America. Pray that somehow America would turn back to God. But the way America's going, trying to find pleasure and happiness in the things of this world, it's a dead-end street. Look over in Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. The Lord many times puts the negative first for emphasis and here in this sixth chapter of Luke, he puts the negative out front. In verse 25, he says, Woe unto you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. It's an interesting verse. He's saying, woe unto them who have to be happy now because later on you're going to be miserable. 
Woe unto all of those who are chasing the thrills and the happiness and you've just got to have it right now and you've got to find things that make you happy. Eventually, you're going to be miserable. If you try to be happy now, if you try to have everything now, you're going to be miserable later. Well, then what's the biblical principle? Well, Jesus, who never spoke an idle word, who never said anything that did not need to be said, Jesus, who preached this Sermon on the Mount to believers, here is what he said. He said, happy are those who have learned to mourn. M-O-U-R-N. It's verse 4, if you want to look at it in in this chapter 5 of Matthew. Blessed are those who mourn, for they, and again, they and they alone, will be comforted. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a gross contradiction. It flies in the face of the world's agenda. It's not what the world is saying. The world is trying to organize itself to avoid ever being sad. And on the opposite side, God says, until you get sad, you'll never be happy. Until you mourn, you'll never be comforted. Two unusual truths. Number one, one can be sad without being happy. But number two, one can never be happy without being sad. You can never be happy unless you're sad first. What's he talking about? To know the life of God. To know God personally. To experience the inner life of God. To experience that inner peace and happiness. We have to walk through the doors of tears and of sadness. There has to be the mourning. Here's the basic biblical bottom line truth. Nobody ever enters the kingdom of God except after he mourns over his sins. You can't make it to heaven. John says you won't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. So he's talking about that kind of experience that that has to do with the mourning over personal sin. You see, beatitude number one was recognition. It was acknowledging God, our dependency upon God and our spiritual bankruptcy. The second beatitude is response. It is spiritual mourning. When you recognize God in His holiness, then you respond to that by realizing your sinfulness and that your sins nailed Jesus to the cross and put Him in the grave, then that breaks your heart. There are nine words in the Bible for this word grief. And out of the nine words used for for grief in the Greek language, this is the strongest word for grief in that language. It's talking about acute grief. To be grief-stricken. It's talking about the the bottom falling out. It's talking about caving in. It's talking about the loss of a loved one. Suddenly someone that you love so much is taken from you and the finality of that and the separation of that, you cave in with grief. You're grief stricken. It's talking about the, the loss of a loved one. Someone who has taken your heart and you love that person dearly. And then you lose that lover. You are grief-stricken. That's the word he uses. 
Now remember, it's Jesus using this word. He never used a wrong word. Jesus took the strongest word in the Greek language and he said, happy are those who are grief-stricken. And only those who are grief-stricken. Nobody else will ever experience genuine happiness without having to mourn and being overcome with grief. Doesn't make sense, does it? By the world's standards. How can a man be happy when he is mourning? And if a man is mourning, why would he want to be happy? If he's happy, why would he want to be mourning? Doesn't make sense. And yet Jesus says, happy? You want to be happy? The route to happiness is to mourn. Let me mention three kinds of mourning, three kinds of grief. You have the first kind that's natural grief. You lose someone that you love dearly, there is that natural grief. You lose a loved one in death, there is that natural grief. And it certainly it's one of the strongest emotions of life. It, it affects your entire being. And there's an entire grieving process. And even when you, when you have a, a loved one that, that has a disease like cancer and is slowly dying, you spend weeks and sometimes months grieving because you know you're going to lose that loved one. But then even when that time comes, there's still more grieving to do. I know in this process with my dad, several times I've thought, well, I think I've, I've grieved. I, I think I've gotten to the point where I can handle it now. And yesterday when we left dad, he asked us would we pray with him. And my brother Charles was there with me. And, and I looked at Charles and he was caving in on me. I looked at mom, and she's caving in. I was wanting one of them to pray because I was afraid I couldn't pray, and then I had to pray, and I, I made it pretty good to, to write the end of the prayer, and then I caved in. But that's, you think you can handle it, and then there's, it's, there's something else. When I called Patricia on the phone, her mom, who'd been so sick, fighting a losing battle with cancer and then reached the point that she had no quality of life to the point where the family begins to say, God, have mercy and take her to be with you. But then as Patricia said to me on the phone, when it happened, she wasn't ready for it. There's something about letting go. There's something about grief that has to go through a process. And we don't get over it in a week or in a month or even in a year. That's natural grief. And you can't stop that. If you try to stop that grief process, it'll destroy you emotionally. You'll, go, you'll break down emotionally. Sooner or later, you've got to get it out. You've got to grieve. You can't just stuff it in. So that's natural grief. But then there's the unnatural grief. That's the inordinate grief. That's, that's where people refuse to be comforted. Something happens and <clears throat> they get angry, they get mad, they, get, they become so rebellious 
that they just allow it to poison their lives and all they put out is that rebellion and that poison. And they're mad at God. They're mad at the church. They're mad at their friends. They're mad at everything. That's an unnatural kind of grief. And that person goes downhill quickly. It gets worse and worse and worse. But then there is a supernatural kind of grief and that is an attitude of the heart. And that's what Jesus is talking about. You see, the Sermon of the Mount is written to believers, and these are qualities that ought to be in our lives, but we within ourselves, our own strength, could never produce these godly qualities. It calls for supernatural power, supernatural wisdom. And so there is a supernatural kind of grief, and it is a godly sorrow that overwhelms us. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Now listen to me. You can never, ever be saved until grief overcomes you, overwhelms you. Your sins literally began to weigh so on you, you feel like if you don't do something, you're going to explode. My friend, if you join a church and you shake a preacher's hand, you can be baptized 15 times, but if you've never admitted and acknowledged that you are a sinner, and your sins put Jesus on that cross, and your sins put Him in the grave, and you're brokenhearted over over those sins against God, you'll never be saved. We're talking about godly sorrow. And godly sorrow leads to godly repentance. There is no genuine repentance without godly sorrow. Godly sorrow leads to godly repentance. Godly repentance leads to confession, and confession leads to salvation, conversion. That's the way people get saved. It begins with mourning. Mourning over our sins, sorry for our sins. Happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, I'm not talking about assumed piety. You've known people that uh, just try to look spiritual. And they have this sad look and, you know, they look like they're in pain and, you know, just uh, they're afraid to smile. They're afraid to laugh. We've got people in this church think you ought to come to church and just, you know, just look. Why don't you get saved and be happy like me? And they've got this, you know, this sad, terrible, painful look, trying to look spiritual, trying to be spiritual, trying to act the part, assuming a piety. That's not what we're talking about. Neither are we talking about the opposite, and that's assumed joy. And I, I tell you, I can handle the those who look so sad that they look like they're weaned on dill pickles. Just, I mean, just. Just sad, sad. I can handle that crowd better than those who put on a fake smile, plastic smile, and everything is wonderful. You don't know. I mean, everything's wonderful. And something terrible just happened, and they're just smiling, saying, well, we just we love God so much, it's all wonderful. Mama just died, praise God. Wife just left me, it's wonderful.
Folks, I heard a preacher, I promise, I was listening to the radio one day and he started this Pentecostal preacher and he said, my wife's homesick, praise God, hallelujah. I thought that doesn't sound exactly right. But you've known people that, that put on this, that everything is wonderful. Folks, that's not a reality. That is a denial of reality. That is unhealthy. If your home is breaking up, don't you walk around acting like everything's fine. You are devastated. If you've lost a loved one, you are devastated emotionally. You say, well, I didn't have a too good a relationship. Then you're devastated more because you've got all that baggage. Life's hard. Life's tough. That's reality. Don't try to deny that. Christianity is real. If you have to put it on, friend, you just take it off. It's not worth messing with. Christianity is real because it's from within. It's not something you put on. It's not something you wear. It is not pretending. It's at the core of our being. Genuine happiness comes from within. It's not from without. You can't wear it. You can't buy it. But genuine happiness issues from a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So the primary meaning of this verse, it's talking about initial. It's talking about those who mourn over sin at conversion. It's talking about godly conviction. It's talking about recognizing that God loves you and that Christ died for you on that cross and that you've broken God's laws. And when you realize you've broken God's laws, you've also broken God's heart. And when you realize you've broken God's heart, it breaks your heart. You begin to have godly sorrow. You see, in dealing with children, that's when I know a child is ready to be saved, when they have godly sorrow over their sins and realize their sins put Jesus on that cross. Because, see, the only way you can be saved is faith in Christ plus the knowledge of sin and godly sorrow and repentance over sin. So it's talking about this initial experience, this new birth experience. Of course, I know some people that claim to be born again that more pain the second time around the first time. I'm talking about the real thing. You'll never be saved until there is a mournful awareness of personal You've broken God's laws, you've broken God's heart, and your heart is broken. And when you acknowledge that sin and repent of that sin and turn to God, that's when the comfort of the gospel and the joy of salvation comes into your life. And when you think about it, what could make anyone happier than to know that all of a sudden, by the grace of God, hell is taken out of your future? Friends, that doesn't bring a smile to your face, nothing will. You don't have to go to hell because of Jesus Christ who died on that cross for your sins. And when you put your sins on Jesus, confess them, acknowledge them, confess them, repent of them, and give them to Christ, then he takes the hell out of your future. And the cross is the only roadblock between anyone and hell. Happy are those who've allowed Jesus to take the hell out of their future. But not only the word hell, the word help. It ought to bring happiness into your life to know that you never have to do anything alone once you have Jesus. 
It's going to help you. It's going to help you cope. It's going to help you handle it. You can make it. That inner strength, that trouble grace. The next word is hope. What can bring happiness into your life any more than knowing that you have hope in Christ that transcends even this life? That one day it will be worth it all when we see Christ. That one day we'll see Him and spend eternity with Him. There's hope in our hearts that not, not anything can separate us from God's love. Not death or anything else. Hope. You see, we all search for significance and satisfaction and security in life. And that all comes as a result of acknowledging our sins and putting them on Jesus and accepting His forgiveness and cleansing. And from that mourning process, out of that mourning, we move into joy and comfort. Conviction? I'm wrong. I've sinned against God. Contrition? I'm sorry for my sins. I repent of my sins. The next step, conversion. Lord, change me internally. I'm going to tell you something. Some of the hardest words to say in the English language are the words, I am wrong and I am sorry. I know it's hard for me to, to, to tell my wife that I'm wrong. and it's been, We've been married nearly 20 years, and both times it's been difficult for me to do that. But as hard as it is for me to say I'm wrong, it's even harder for me to add to that, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Why is it so hard? See, unless we are broken, our pride is broken, and we acknowledge our sinfulness, and that our sin is not just an accident or a mistake, it's not some little thing, our sin is in the face of a holy God. It's broken His law, but more than that, it's broken His heart. And then it breaks our heart. Then and only then will we say, I was wrong, I am sorry, forgive me. And then and only then can you be saved. And then comes the joy and the happiness. I'll tell you something else in your marriage. If you can say I'm wrong and I'm sorry, you'll see a whole lot more comfort and joy in your marriage. Hello? That's right. The comfort of the gospel. The gospel is a comfort. Now listen to me. Listen carefully. There is no comfort in this world that's lasting outside the comfort of the gospel. People try everything. Wanting a little comfort. Wanting some help and some assurance. Wanting somebody to say it's going to be all right. But there is absolutely no comfort for the sinner outside the gospel of Jesus Christ. Happy are those who mourn over their sins. They and they alone are comforted. The song that says something lifted off of me. That night I knelt to pray. You talk about spelling relief. You talk about experiencing relief and comfort. When you feel the load of sin lifting off your life, there's not, a, there's not anything in the world that so fills you and fulfills you and gives you that sense of release and relief as the load of sin 
lifted off your life. The comfort of the gospel. Nothing in the world can compare to the comfort that Christ brings when the sins are forgiven. After you've mourned, then the comfort of the gospel comes. You can't have the comfort of the gospel until you mourn over your sin and repent of your sin. Then the comfort comes. So, the primary initial meaning of this text is that it's talking about mourning over your sins and coming to the to Christ and being forgiven and changed and converted. It's talking about being born again. It's talking about that initial experience of salvation. But it means more than that because the word not only means mourning. He said, blessed are those that that mourn. Not that have mourned. Because this word means those who have mourned, those who are mourning, those who will mourn. It is both an initial and a continual experience. Now listen to me. You'll never see God. You'll never make it to heaven unless there's a time in your life when your heart has been broken over your own personal sins and you have laid your sins on Jesus Christ and His blood. But that does not end it for you as a Christian. Because guess what? After that initial experience, you will again sin. The moment you got saved, you thought you would never sin again. Right? You remember that day? You thought you were through with it from now on? Wouldn't it be wonderful if God would zap us free of sin? But He doesn't. I'll tell you something else. You remember when you got saved, the comfort, the happiness, the joy that you felt? Incomparable, indescribable. But not only is that initial experience, but it is a continual experience. You have mourned over sins and you came to Christ, but now you are mourning because today you've done something else you should not have done. And I love to preach on Sunday. It's a great day to preach because some of you have trouble coming to church on Sunday morning. You fight all the way to church. Some of you start fighting before you ever leave them because the devil attacks us on Sunday morning. I learned that several years ago. That's why I leave home about 6 o'clock on Sunday morning before anybody gets up. <laughs> Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to preach. I wouldn't be fit to preach the time I got here. And the devil attacks us. He never leaves us alone. And we battle sin every day of our life. Do I sin as your preacher? You know that I do. Have I ever done the same sins over again? You got it. We all battle sin. But what do we do about our sins? Does it bother us and does it break our hearts? And are we able to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, forgive me? If you can't, that's why you're miserable as a Christian because the comfort and the joy comes when we get the sin thing cleared up. That's why you got so many unhappy church members because they got so much junk and garbage and unconfessed sin in their lives. They can't experience the comfort, the joy because of the unconfessed sins. So we continually acknowledge and confess our sin. I tell you, I'm glad that 1 John 1 9 is in the Bible. That's the greatest comfort I know of 
God says if we're faithful to confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse. He says, if you will, I will. If you'll acknowledge your sin, if you'll mourn over your sin and bring it to me, I'll confess, I'll cleanse, and I'll forgive. People say to me, well, I'm just not happy, preacher. I, I, I'm in the church, but I'm just not happy. I'm just not a very happy person. I know I'm saved, but I'm not a very happy person. Now, if you come to me for counseling and say, I'm just not very happy, the first place I'm going to look is what about unconfessed sin? Because that's the root of most unhappiness in the life of a Christian. I'm just not very happy. Well, what about the sin? Are those who say, I tell you right now, I'm upset. I'm mad. I'm critical. Though, you know, I realized a long time ago that the people in the church who grumble and complain and criticize are those who are hiding, covering their own personal sins. It's a smokescreen. We could cut out a lot of grumbling, griping, complaining, criticizing if when you hear somebody doing that, say, hey, what are you covering up? What's your sin that you're covering up? Because what we want to do is use it as a smokescreen, and we're always pointing at somebody else to keep people from pointing at us. Unconfessed sin. What keeps this church from being absolutely packed out? Unconfessed sin. We've got 6,000 members. What if they all showed up? You couldn't hold us over in the Civic Center. But why can you get a seat? It's because of unconfessed sins. Now, there are not many seats in this service, but <clears throat> we had a few in the earlier service. <clears throat> we ought to be having four and five services a Sunday. We've got that many members. But why is the building not packed? Why do people not come? Why are not people standing at the doors to get in to hear the Word of God? Because of unconfessed sin. Why is it every Sunday school teacher is not powerful every Sunday so there's conviction in that classroom that's overwhelming? Unconfessed sin. What keeps us from being effective for God? Unconfessing. What keeps us closed mouth about the gospel so that we're paralyzed and unable to witness to our neighbors? Unconfessing. What keeps relationships from being healed, put back together? Unconfessing. What keeps the Bible unopened in our homes? Unconfessing. Now listen to me. The closer we get to God, the more it bothers us when we break His heart, when we disobey Him. I want you to follow. You see, if you can hear a sermon like this this morning and go through an invitation and walk out of here, that doesn't mean that you didn't need the sermon. It means you're so far from God 
we become desensitized. Because the closer you get to God, the more it bothers you when you realize there's some something in your life that ought not to be, some area of your life that isn't committed to Him, something that you're not doing for Him, bothers you. We ought to mourn over personal sin in our lives. I'm not sure we ought to ever have a service in this church where there is not weeping in the service. And yet, my, my friends, I cannot remember when I've seen tears over sin. The church, we ought to mourn over the condition of God's church. You say, well, I think we got a pretty good church. The church as a whole is so far from God we become desensitized to sin. As Howard Appleman, the preacher of years ago, said, too many converts are swept in, not nearly enough are wept in. No tears. How long has it been since somebody's walked down an aisle to one of our staff members or to me as a pastor and said, Pastor, I have broken God's heart and it's broken my heart. And they just stood there and wept. Why is it that I saw that for the first 10 or 15 years of my ministry but no longer see it today? Have we gotten above sin? Do we not sin anymore? Or does it not bother us like it once bothered us? Should we mourn over lost mankind? Does it break our heart that people are going to hell without Jesus? Our neighbors, our loved ones, family members. Does that break our heart? Why doesn't it? Are they not going to hell? Are they not going to die? Most die unexpectedly. What's changed? Lee and I were talking, coming from Dallas last night. And we were talking about this text and about this message and, and we were convicted even as we talked about it because our lives have been so hectic the last few months. And we said, you know, we, right now we don't have a prayer list of lost people that we're claiming for God. Well, we can offer a thousand excuses, but none of them are valid. Because you see, if we're not careful as a church, we can spend all of our time with God's people and the world goes to hell. And we don't even know who they are. What's your prayer list look like for lost people that you're claiming, that you're sharing with, that you're working on, that you're reaching out to? Then we took the next 15 minutes talking about people that we are concerned about, that we've had a relationship with, that, that need to make a commitment to God. 
What about you? Happy are those who mourn. Initial mourning, that's how you get saved. But then continual mourning over your own sins that you're confessed up to date. Sins of commission and sins of omission. Somebody, that Sunday school teacher was asking class, what are the sins of omission? And some kid said, they're the sins we should have committed and didn't get around to it. No, the sins of omission are those things you should have done for God and you didn't do it. The Bible says to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him it is sin. I'm I'm sorry? Sin. Excuse me, I thought you'd gone there for a minute. So sins of omission, sins of commission. Personal sin, God's church, lost mankind. And when we mourn, then we find happiness. Then we find comfort. Then we find joy. The divine comfort of God that passeth all understanding that is joy unspeakable. Joseph Scriven, who had a one terrible thing after another happened in his life. So many traumatic things that some said if he did not know the Lord, they think that he would have gone insane. He fell in love with a young lady who brought more joy into his life than anything outside of Christ. And one week before they were married, his fiancée drowned. Again devastated. Left that part of the country. But then in the process of his grief and his mourning, he received the comfort of God's grace and of God's joy. And he began to write about it in the hymn. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Faith had filtered through. The bud of sorrow had produced the blossom of comfort. Happy are those who mourn. For they and they alone shall be comforted. Let's pray. Father, speak to our hearts in this time of invitation. Holy Spirit, nudge us, convict us, move us, shake us, Yes, break our hearts. Somehow we can know what it's like to weep over our own neglect, to weep over our own sins, to weep over the sins of others, the sins of our nation, the sins of our church. Help us to mourn. until we find our way to comfort. It's not a false comfort at all. A settled, 
rewarding comfort of the grace of God, the gospel of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together across the building. We're going to see. We hope you were blessed by our program today. If you would like a copy of today's program, go to www.fredlowry.com where you can find this program and other Christian resources by Dr. Fred Lowry. 